0: This is Karen Kelly, and you're listening to An Appetite for Life. There's a great mix on this show, just various topics, amazing guests, and the occasional celebrity guff. So my guest today is Dr. Warwick Bishop, all the way from Hobart. He's a cardiologist and best-selling author of Know Your Real Risks of Heart Attack and Atrial Fibrillation Explained, and also recently launched Cardiac Failure Explained. So welcome, Warwick. It's great to have you on the show today. Thanks,
1: Karen. Delighted to be here.
0: I know you're in Hobart. It's a long, long way away. So I think you're about nine hours ahead at the moment, aren't you?
1: Yep, it's something like that. It's about ten o'clock at night where I'm at the moment, and it's dark outside, and I can hear the weather.
0: and you are you living right on the beach? I think I took I looked at your link and you've got a beautiful uh, sea view there, haven't you? So is it the wind is it winter time there at the moment?
1: It's winter time. It's pretty cold and dark. and in fact,, uh, I can hear the waves crashing up to shore at the moment. There's a big swell, so uh, it's... Oh, I uh, love that. ...rugged up inside.
0: Oh, I love that. I love that. Well, congratulations on everything that you do and all your books. Uh, But first of all, for our listeners, I know we've all heard of it. We know that cardiology is related to the heart. But let's really break it down. So what is the role of a cardiologist? Look,
1: a lot of my patients come in and ask because I'm a specialist, should they call me mister? And I say, no, that's not the case. Um, A mister is actually a term that's been uh, used for the specialists who perform surgery on people. So someone who cuts out an appendix, for example. A cardiologist is someone who's a specialist in treating people without surgical intervention and a nice example I use for people is if you had asthma you can't get a surgeon to cut your lungs out because you need them you need someone who's specialist in treating with the medications specific for asthma so so I told you all that to tell you this and that is that a cardiologist is really someone who specializes in the non-surgical management of heart-related conditions we do procedures things like pacemakers things like stents but a lot of our work is managing and figuring out who may need to progress to surgery who may be best managed by medicines
0: yeah and so your role clearly is to help people who have issues with that you know that part of their body but your mission is to prevent heart attacks rather than cure them so why this sudden change why why this intervention and in, in, in this concept tell us this fabulous story about the runner i love it
1: well the um i mean the long and the short of it karen is that the the training in medicine is all about disease and yeah. we learn to deal with um you know the woman on the second floor in the surgical bed with Jaundice, and the, you know the man who had the heart attack on the medical floor, or, or whatever. But we're always thinking about the disease and disease problems. Uh, well, that's really I was exactly the same, and um, in, in a weird sort of happenstance, in about two thousand and five, I was driving to work on a Sunday. I was just I was on call, and there was a fun run in progress, uh, literally along the street that I had to drive along to get to work. I saw there was a commotion by the side of the road, an ambulance, uh, people gathered round. Uh, I had no idea what was going on. Of course, I'm a doctor and I thought to myself, maybe, maybe I could help. Uh, so I pulled over and offered some assistance. Well, it turned out that uh, one of the fun runners, a man in his early 50s had literally dropped dead by wow. the side of the road from a heart attack.
0: Gosh, what a shock were- for everybody.
1: Well, this man had put on his sand shoes that morning, expecting to run a 10 kilometre fun run. And when I arrived, there were two ambulance officers uh, because an ambulance had arrived. Uh, Two ambulance officers, there was a doctor in the crowd and a nurse uh, in the crowd, the fun run crowd. And uh, myself, we all worked on this gentleman, this man. We got his heart going again. We got him in the back of the ambulance. He got to the local hospital and uh, lo and behold, they put a stent in the artery that runs down the front of his heart. He had a fantastic outcome, and uh, believe it or not, he made the paper uh, a day or two later as a success story. Wow! And um,
0: but wasn't he one of your patients, Warwick? Previously? Well,
1: yes. So the the bit the bit that's a slight embarrassment is that uh, in this front page article in the paper, which I have to say. Um, it wasn't beyond me to take a copy of the paper down to my office and just mention to the staff that, uh, you know, I happened to be featured in the uh, write-up of this particular case, only to have one of my secretaries say, but Warwick, you saw the same man 18 months earlier. Oh, gracious. At the time, he actually had had some very nonspecific symptoms. We'd put him through a treadmill test, so I made him run on a treadmill, monitored his heart, And believe it or not, he did absolutely fine. There was no sign of any problem whatsoever. I did everything in keeping with guidelines at the time. I reassured this man and literally 18 months later was standing over his dead body, resuscitating him. That was an extraordinary moment for me. I realised that what we were doing in terms of our evaluation of risk of heart attack had, had failed this man
0: terribly. That's an incredible story. It really is an incredible story. And I also read a bit deeper about it. And I think on the notes for this chap, correct me if I'm wrong, was there a 6% chance of him having a heart attack in the next five years, which is incredibly low, isn't it? But I suppose the way, so the way you're explaining it, in fact, you'll let like, you explain that.
1: So you're exactly right. And in fact, my journey since, that particular event has been to try and educate people around the way we assess risk. And historically, we have used what we call risk calculators. And what you're alluding to is a reference uh, I make in the book and also in a couple of the uh, TEDx presentations I've done, where we use one of these risk calculators where we put in the person's age and sex and blood pressure and cholesterol and smoking history and diabetic history. We put in all these characteristics and it comes up with a number or a risk of an event over the next uh, five years or 10 years. And for this particular man, when you put in his details into a risk calculator, at the time, his risk came up at 6% of an event, just as you said, over the next five years. And in fact, based on that, he was considered low
0: risk. Gosh, it does make you, it's an eye-opener, isn't it?
1: Let me put this to you a different way, Karen. The the thing that was most striking about this risk calculator result is the way it needs to be presented to an individual patient. Now, when I saw this man back in 2003, I I wasn't having this conversation with patients. But these days, if the same person came in or a similar person with the same characteristics came in, and came in with a risk calculator score that said they're at 6% risk in the next five years. I'd say, well, look, what this means is not necessarily that you're at low risk, but what it tells us is that if we were to take 100 men with the same characteristics as you and follow those 100 men for five years, six of those men would have a heart attack, an event. And honestly, I don't know if you're one of the six or one of the
0: 94. Wow. Uh, But yeah, it's so true, isn't it? I mean, you know, we would go away quite pleased with that, thinking that 6% is a good figure. I'm okay. I feel quite healthy. Thank you very much. Of course. So, Karen,
1: you are familiar with aircraft. If the next time you checked into a plane, they said, "Madam, uh, there's a low risk of this plane crashing uh, on this flight." It's approximately a six percent risk over the next five years. I think you'd think about driving or taking a uh, yacht or a boat. Yeah, you, you know, get on
0: that plane.
1: <laughs> unacceptable risk in another area. Yeah. Except we we haven't got our mindset around how this is just completely wrong and and unacceptable in 2021. You know, we can do better. And and this is in fact, what my first book was about, the technology we can use to go from that population-based risk tool, a 6% risk is really, it's not the risk of an individual, it's the rate of event within the population in which that individual sits.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I was listening to your TEDx talk, Um, it was brilliant by the way, and I just wanted to talk about some of the statistics because there again, they blow your mind. So heart disease obviously is the number one killer in the Western world, and it causes over 9 million deaths per year, which is incredibly high. Um, And also, obviously you can correct me, these, these probably have changed, I'm sure they have, Over 640,000 of those are in the US and over 18,000 in Australia, which equates to one death every 40 seconds in the US and one every 28 in Australia. And I looked at the UK and there's one person dies every three minutes in the UK. I mean, that's just incredible, isn't it?
1: So I think it remains a remarkable blind spot to, um, governments, and really the medical profession. And we, to a small degree, I don't want to sound critical, but we almost pay lip service to prevention of coronary artery disease. And and Karen, I don't want to pick you up too much, but the the statistic that really upsets me and motivates me the most is out of all those heart attacks that occur, 20% occur in people who are 65 years of age or less.
0: Yeah. 20%, isn't it?
1: These are people who still have so much life to give. And now we often think, oh, you've got to die from something. But when 20% of these people are being taken, literally in their prime, there is something really wrong about that. And and when we think about the disruption that COVID has had in the world, do you know how many people COVID has killed in the last 18 odd months? About four and a half million, half. The number
0: of people who die from heart attack each year. I know it's so annoying, isn't it? When the way all the way things have, have happened, you know, and more people die of a heart attack, yet the whole world closed down and people couldn't get their treatments. And I know it's not just the heart patients. But Warwick, where are we going wrong? Where are we going wrong to, you know, become these one of these statistics? What 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 do we need to do?
1: There's a couple of things that are really have been hurdles to change, Karen. And um, I guess the first thing is that for a long time, we've used standard risk calculators as our modus operandum for dealing with risk for coronary artery disease. So it's what we've done for a long time. And often change can take a whole generation. (laughs) Unfortunately, it can take a whole generation because if you've done something for a long time, um, you, you often don't, sometimes don't change unless you're really compelled and that's uncommon yeah the other thing is and and I allude to this not only in the uh, TEDx talks but also in my book is that there's this interesting tension in the requirement of the medical community to need what we call uh, levels of evidence uh, that are supportive of our interventions and it turns out that the very technology that could be saving our lives, which I believe is uh, imaging the heart to literally look at the health of the arteries, and that's CT scanning, and that's what the TEDx talks and the and the uh, first book I wrote are about. This very technology is very difficult to put through the sort of uh, testing rigor uh, that's required to generate the levels of evidence that would make it uh broadly accepted and and the reason is very simple it's cost isn't it must be no it's not cost in fact because the the americans have done some good costing analysis and if you think about it even on the back of an envelope you can figure out very quickly that if you can save six heart attacks out of 100 blokes uh, for a couple thousand bucks a bloke you're saving a lot of money to the community and a lot of suffering so so the economics doesn't hold to be honest other than the lost income to the people who proffer in curing disease at the expense of people remaining well, which is a different a different dilemma, and that's almost uh, that's a different sort of philosophical issue actually. But the 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 issue with trying to get good data is that for imaging the heart, we would need to run a trial where we scan. Uh, the population who are under investigation, we know what's in their arteries. And then half of those people we subject to a treatment intervention, and half those people we don't subject to a treatment intervention. Now, as soon as you think about that sort of trial setup, you realize that you're scanning the population who are going to be subjects of the trial. But once you find anything in those arteries, you can't in your heart of hearts or ethically uh, then randomize those individuals to no treatment. If you've seen something. So the, the trial to demonstrate that imaging arteries and putting in place appropriate intervention compared to imaging arteries, knowing what's there and not putting in appropriate intervention cannot be done. And therefore the randomized double blind trial to give us the highest level of evidence, which normally guides our guideline recommendations is unlikely to ever be done because it'll never get through an ethics committee, which is almost a catch twenty two.
0: He yeah, was going to say it's catch twenty two, isn't it? Just going back to the runner, so he was at the six percent, and he went away happy thinking, which I would do, thinking, well, that's that's a low risk. What was wrong? What caused that heart attack? Was it changing diet for that individual, or because the other five may have been okay and they might still be living a healthy life? So what kind of I've, stood out?
1: Yeah, so so the bit that's really important to understand is that we don't really understand coronary artery disease, and there is a disconnect between the things that are associated with coronary artery disease and the things that actually cause coronary artery disease, and I'll give you that in a slightly different scenario or in a different setting. If we were to talk about car accidents, you and I would both agree that they're Associated with speeding, and they're associated with alcohol, yeah. and yet car accidents occur in people who neither speed or drink, and they don't occur in people who may speed, and could be intoxicated. Yeah, yeah. And so, so there is a, a very distinct difference between association and causation. Now, what I put to you is that the actual causation of coronary artery disease is far more complicated then we know it it goes down to perhaps individual amino acids on the proteins that make up the carriers of different fat particles and the electrical charge within the uh, connective tissue inside the blood vessels and shear stress and and stuff to be honest Karen it spins my head
0: I could talk about this all day it's really interesting
1: The thing that amazes me is, I mean, I I try as best I can to keep across this. I get to speak to some of the smartest people in the world about this. And I have no idea. I often say to patients, look, um, I'm probably the most qualified, highest paid person you will speak to ever about coronary artery disease. And I don't understand it. And these are the reasons why. Wow. It really is incredible. Let me add one other thing to that, though, Karen. And the... That is the essence of my efforts, which are if we don't fully understand the process of coronary artery disease, why would we use associations to guess who may or may not have a problem when we can simply take a picture of an individual's heart arteries to look at that individual and make an assessment, healthy, unhealthy, or somewhere in between?
0: Yeah. I mean, do you think that will happen? Is that something of the future?
1: almost without doubt yeah taking a CT image of the coronary arteries is really like a mammogram of the heart
0: yeah yeah
1: we don't think twice about mammography
0: totally no no okay so let's move on and talk about the healthy heart network which is just brilliant so this is your creation so talk us through it
1: well look the long the short of it is I I ended up writing
0: um,
1: my first book about uh, cardiac CT imaging, really because I had a a stone in my shoe. I felt very much that this information needed to get into the hands of individual patients so that they could be empowered in the conversations and and the direction of their own medical care. And that's because when I first started sharing with my colleagues about this technology, I really felt like a pioneer. I, I got a lot of arrows and, um, and my colleagues were not picking up this technology. Patients would go and see them. And say, I want to know what my risk of heart attack is. And they would be given a risk calculator assessment and a treadmill test. And I knew from my fun runner that that's inadequate.
0: Yeah, it's not enough. It's not enough, is it? It's
1: not enough. And so, and they kept doing it actually and kept shooting arrows at me. And I got, I actually got so distressed, I wrote a book, and it was the last thing in the world I thought I would ever do. The, um, I couldn't write an essay at school to save myself. So, writing a book was a, <laughs> uh, I
0: know it sounds brilliant. So, this is, is this Know Your Real Risks of Heart Attack? Which book is, Well, the the very
1: first book I wrote was actually called uh, Have You Planned Your Heart Attack? But we found that people found that title a bit confronting.
0: (laughs) I want a copy. They all sound fantastic. I'm really interested in the heart because I, I used to teach fitness and you had to know um you know the diagram of the heart and, and everything with the with the ventricles and the atriums and the and the valves and everything. And I found it really interesting. I should have been a doctor, no, not clever <laughs> enough. But um I do find it fascinating. For that reason. Even at the time I remember finding it really interesting. So which, if you've wrote several books, which book would you recommend then to explain this in simple terms, do you think? So
1: my first book was uh, Have You Planned Your Heart Attack? I think that's got the most detail in it. Um, and of course it's my first born so I'm uh, deeply attached to it we trimmed it down a little made it slightly more digestible and changed the name to know your real risk of heart attack and the other two books are are very uh, condition specific so atrial fibrillation explained atrial fibrillation as you're aware is an irregular uh, rhythm from the top chambers of the heart and the most recent book released is cardiac failure explained but the the reason I told you about the journey with the books, uh, those, well, the first book is that they were really the catalyst for putting together the Healthy Heart Network because we yeah. realised that uh, just giving people the book was probably not enough to guide them through the process of helping themselves really understand and have the confidence to um, take ownership of their own healthcare. And, and look, say to the doctor, um, look, doc, uh, I'm... <laughs> I'm not entirely happy with that uh, risk calculator score. And I don't particularly want to maybe this test here for these reasons. What do you think? Yeah. Because uh, because
0: best educated patients get the best healthcare. So Definitely. So let's go back to the Healthy Heart Network. You've got discovery, assessment, healthy plan, action plan, and my journey. So talk us through what what's involved and what people can do how they can join this healthy heart network do they need to be well it might be a deaf question actually they don't need to have an unhealthy heart to start with they can be at that six percent
1: well to a large degree karen the whole uh drive of what i want to do is to keep people well um in fact i want to identify people who are healthy and in fact My job uh, to a large degree these days is actually seeing well people who are being sent by the local GPs, the local family doctors who know I have an interest in prevention. And so a bit like uh, your car, you take it in for a service while it is still running well to avoid a problem. You don't necessarily wait till it's making a noise or leaking oil badly uh, for that so-called regular service. So... Um, first of all, I think there is a huge role in trying to keep people well and being forewarned to stop the problems and and prevent heart attacks. So this is aimed at keeping people well. People who might have a family history of premature coronary disease in the family, people who might have high cholesterol, who might be worried about their high blood pressure who may be a bit more sedentary and maybe gained a little bit of weight and are worried about their own risk of heart attack. People who may know someone who is a friend or close family member who have died unexpectedly at a young age. And really, the uh, the books I've written, um, Have You Planned Your Heart Attack? Know Your Real Risk of Heart Attack? And the Healthy Heart Network are uh, to help educate and support those people. And the journey is really one of that you would expect from any journey of, Um, growth and change. You have to evaluate where you are now and that's really a discovery process. Uh, Then go through some testing and figure out uh, in more detail exactly what's going on. So in the Healthy Heart Network, discovery is all about the conversation we just had, understanding risk factors and understanding the limitation of risk calculators and understanding why you might change your approach. Our assessment is really talking about getting a heart scan and seeing what's there and then interpreting what that means and, and what you then need to do about it. And the health plan is really tried, directed to try and match up with those requirements, but also really talking about the way we use medications because a single dose of medication may not be the right thing right across the board. Some people may have very high risk features in their arteries. Some people may have very low risk features. Some people may be intolerant to a certain medication some people may be very tolerant so there's a lot of tailoring being specific matching up needs and appropriate intervention
0: and I take it this will be like an ongoing program for that individual they're kind of investing in their health aren't they for the future it's not something they're just going to come and see you join it for a few weeks and then leave they're going to be in it for life I take it
1: so we don't expect people to be in for life the actual journey is about six months and we send out a little bit of information every week uh, and that education material has a journal uh, some videos ongoing support and that really takes people through a process we also um, run a live facebook group which is interactive and on a fortnightly basis i uh, answer questions and share information into that group so a number of the people who've gone through the discovery, assessment, health plan, action plan and my journey stay on in the um, in the community, actually, and, and continue to learn.
0: What do you think is the biggest factor? Do you think it's high cholesterol? Because that's like a hidden demon, really, isn't it?
1: So, as I said to you before, we don't understand. Full stop. We really just don't understand.
0: Because I was diagnosed with high cholesterol, I'm I'm hot and the armpits listening to you. <laughs> I've addressed it, you know. I was, but um, yeah, it's quite frightening, isn't it?
1: Well, it's it, the reason why I'm so passionate about imaging the arteries is these these events, these heart events, these heart attacks occur out of the blue in otherwise what appear to be healthy people, yeah. and. And the irony is that you know it only takes one centimeter of unhealthy artery in the forty odd centimeters of artery that you have wrapped major arteries that you have wrapped around the heart. It only takes one centimeter to to be diseased and a plaque to rupture and block that artery suddenly for someone to for someone's
0: life to be ended, which is what happened to the fun runner. Oh, no. Gosh, gracious. Oh, do you know, we're running out of time and I want to continue talking all day about this. It's really interesting. So let's just talk about your recent book. You've launched on the 1st of September, Cardiac Failure Explained. Tell us all about this book.
1: Well, cardiac failure is really a term that we use for a heart that's not doing its job, not pumping properly. And really, it's just not getting enough blood around the body. It's an incredibly common condition. And as people are aging, it's becoming more and more common. It's an enormous burden on the um, community financially and in terms of uh, morbidity and mortality. And it's probably impacting as many people as coronary artery disease, as it is a consequence of hearts that have been damaged from coronary artery disease. It's a huge topic and it's probably our biggest undertaking this particular book because it's a very complex area and we've worked really hard to try and make it accessible to the average reader so that they get a better understanding of the the tension that occurs in cardiac failure. And that tension that occurs in cardiac failure is that the, the heart is best looked after by reducing blood pressure and letting it pump against as little pressure as possible. Yet at the same time, the kidneys, sensing low blood pressure, want to retain salt and water so that they get plenty of blood going through them. So there's this, uh, if you like, tug of war between the heart and the kidneys, and uh, and that that really is the crux of it. Uh, Except we drag it out for about two hundred and fifty pages with a lot (laughs) of detail.
0: You know, I, I have a question. I have a question before we go and you might not be able to answer. It. I don't know. So what percentage do you think of cardiac failure is inherited? Is genetic. And what is diet and lifestyle? Do you think
1: the, uh, the inherited cardiomyopathies are a relatively small group, maybe 15, 20%, something like that.
0: Wow. So that uh, is low. A, isn't it?
1: a large proportion. We don't understand a good proportion, a, a moderate proportion are related to damage to the heart, say, from a heart attack. And one of the things that's really a uh, almost a tsunami coming upon us of, 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 of mortality and morbidity is this concept of heart failure with a heart that looks like it's still working normally. And in very simple terms, you'll remember some of your physiology from... Um, your exercise physiology days, but obviously the heart, um, uh, has to squeeze, we call that systole and it has to relax. We call that diastole. So squeezing and relaxing, squeezing and relaxing. Now, if the heart doesn't squeeze very well, we call that systolic failure because it's not pumping very hard, but remarkably, Karen, you can have all sorts of trouble if the heart doesn't relax properly. So mm-hmm. you can have all the symptoms of cardiac failure because the heart's stiff. Now, think of as we get older, our joints get a bit stiff and they don't move so well. Our muscles in our legs and back don't move so well. Well, of course, our heart is a bit the same.
0: And it's a muscle, isn't it?
1: Exactly. And so one of the things we're seeing is this heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, which is really a heart that just doesn't relax properly. We're seeing it as people get older. We're seeing it as people are carrying more weight. We're seeing it in females more often than men actually. And we're seeing it in uh, particularly people who are overweight with high blood pressure. And it's, it's very hard to treat. There's more and more of it. As you're getting older, we're seeing it more and more
0: as well. So yeah. I've got another question. So I've just got to throw it in there quickly. So when you say it's um, more prone to women, could that be a menopausal related problem?
1: So there's a number of theories. We don't know exactly why, um, but hormones are thrown in the mix as one of the possibilities. The The other is that women tend to have a smaller body habitus and therefore a smaller heart as well. So there's a couple of things around that that sort of uh, may tie
0: in I would have thought women a- had the bigger hearts Warwick
1: <laughs> at Christmas time yes almost certainly at Christmas time so uh, but uh, but fascinating so uh so the book covers that that range of uh, different ways the heart can fail either through not being able to squeeze properly so uh, reduced ejection fraction failing in systole, and uh unable to relax properly or uh, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. It's, a fa- it's fascinating, but it's the fascinating. implications- of-
0: It's just a, a real topic of interest, isn't it? Something you could just talk about all day. So for our listeners, it has been absolutely fantastic talking to you today. And we must have you back on again. You must come and talk again a bit more about this subject. But for our listeners, how can they get hold of these fantastic books and maybe join your Facebook group and, and maybe for you to answer any questions? How can they get in contact with you?
1: Look, the easiest way, Karen, is to uh, simply put in www.dr, Warwick, W A W R I C K. That's an unusual spelling of Warwick drwarwickbishop.com or Google Dr Warwick Bishop. Uh, the books are also available through Amazon, but links on my webpage will take you there. If you're interested, we've got a, a, a an entry level to the Healthy Heart Network for only $5. We've got over 200 podcasts or something in that order, order. Uh, downloadable resources, uh, some dietary stuff as well. Uh, and there's also a, uh, a full paid membership available option option available as well
0: brilliant absolutely brilliant well thank you once again for talking to us i wish you all the best with your future endeavors and i must get hold of some of these books and i look forward to talking to you again
1: Karen, it's been a pleasure thanks so much
0: you've been listening to an appetite for life sponsored by Daybank house dental practice where happiness starts with a smile if you are interested in any of my packages or wish to be a guest on this show then you can contact me via my social media pages karen kelly podcasts or send an email to carolindakelley at btinternet.com.